Uh, in a series called Why Do I Do What I Do? We're talking about the heart and what God says about it, how it directs every part of our lives, why it matters so much. And uh, last week, just by way of introduction, here's what uh, Porter taught. You know, C plus last week. Uh, here's, here's, what, here's what he said last week. Uh, your heart is the core of your, this will be on the screen for you by the way, uh, the heart is the core of your being, it's the center of that unseen immaterial uh, soul that animates every aspect of life, it's complicated, one of the ways that we image God as people is just the sheer complexity of our inner lives, emotions, habits, intuitions, perceptions, thoughts, wisdom, passion, attachment, decisions, I mean the list just goes on and on. If you've ever felt like a complicated person, it's because scripture says uh, that you are. Uh, third, it's deceitful. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So sin has entered into this complex uh, web of the will, heart, and mind and is tearing everything apart. Uh, but thankfully, we said last week also, uh, our hearts are also the dwelling place of Christ. God has not left his people with a broken core at the center of themselves. The promise of the gospel is that when we say yes to Jesus in faith, he enters the, the complicated core of our being and begins to heal and restore uh, and put things back together. This is what Christians mean when they say that Jesus lives in my heart. That's actually, it sounds cheesy. It is actually right out of scripture. Galatians 2.20, for example, Paul says, and so it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's talking about his heart. And it's, and now I, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Okay? So that was last week. This week we're going to turn to the question, well then, uh, how does that actually work? How does the heart actually direct every part of my life? And then how does God begin putting that back together in the gospel? And to do that, I'm going to share a, a simple picture with you, okay? This, this picture can be drawn on a napkin in about five seconds. It can be taught to your kids. We've got a bunch of three and four-year-olds running around here who have been taught this in their missional communities or at home. Uh, it's a picture that I use, I, I'd say, several times a month when I can't get a handle on why I'm doing what I'm doing, why I'm feeling what I'm feeling. I'm going to move this real quick. So I, I just write this little picture uh, in a notebook and I try to work things out. Uh, this is a picture we teach in freedom groups. We got another session of freedom groups coming up in a month. We teach this in the spiritual disciplines class. We've got a new session of that starting next month as well. We teach it to our missional community leaders and biblical counseling. I know they've taught it in the Women and Lord. My point is this is not a marginal thing, okay? We try to teach this everywhere and you all get it this morning, okay? Here's the picture. It's on your screen right now. It's called the Fruit to Root Tool. There's a little sun up in the left-hand corner and a heart with a tree growing out of it. Fruit to root, see? The sun, let's just, we're just going to walk through this from top to bottom real quick. And then we're going to look at a scripture together uh, that shows this at work. Okay? You can see a little sun up in the corner. The sun represents our circumstances or the, the heat in our lives. These are the things that bring pressure to bear on our hearts. And this will be on the screen as well. Here are just a few, and I started them all with S because I love you and I'm a good pastor, okay? So sin, sin creates its own kind of heat. We think it's gonna solve problems, it only makes them worse. Sickness 
brings pressure to bear on the heart. The opposition of Satan makes life harder. Sinful people, probably the most common and significant pressure we face is sinful people. Suffering. Suffering causes us to question the goodness of God. It causes us to question his promises. We're going to see that in our reading today. Success uh, can be as dangerous to your soul as suffering is. And finally, I've called the last one just sadness. What I mean by that is, you know, for a variety of environmental and physiological and historical reasons, some of us just by nature, uh, joy and laughter and contentment don't come naturally to us. Or there are, are environmental factors. It's January in Wisconsin. Of course you're sad. Get some vitamin. The Packers lost last night. So get, get yourself some vitamin D and take a walk or something like, okay? This, uh, then the, the fruit on the tree. This is what we mean by, by fruit. Fruit are the emotions, actions, and reactions that our lives are producing. Emotions you're all familiar with. I won't belabor that point. But actions and reactions, how I would distinguish between these is uh, actions are the things we're doing and the decisions that we're making and reactions feel like they come out of nowhere. Reactions feel like they come out of nowhere but they're actually just habits and patterns you've established over time getting worked out in the moment. So uh, I'll share one quick example. As long as my kid's going to make fun of me, I'll just make fun of him. It's fine. Uh, about two months ago, it's a Sunday. Darcy and I are getting ready to go to a party and I have just had it up to here with screen time. And if you have children, 10 and under, I don't even need to explain what that phrase means. But dad has absolutely had it. I'm, here's the fruit. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm confused. I grew up without screens and I didn't die. And I'm tired of talking about it. I'm tired of arguing about it and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I get in the car with Darcy and here's the decisions I make. I said to Darcy on the way to the party, I said, Tomorrow morning, it's Monday, I'm going to rip the internet cable out of the wall. All the TVs are coming off. The boys are going to come home to a, an Amish household. We're going back to 1800, and we're going to be happy, happy, happy. <laughs> we get to the party. I'm still hot. I'm explaining all this to a friend. He gets it. He's got kids. And I, this is why I'm going to rip the internet out of the house. And no more TV and no more computers. And he says, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely this is the perfect opportunity for a complete overreaction let's do it he said wait what you really need he's coaching me up what you really need to do you know kids don't know where the internet comes from when they come home from school have a cable lying in the grass and you're out there with an axe ah just chopping it down that that'll get their attention you know? so all of that so that there's there's an example of fruit what am I feeling? What am I going to do? How am I reacting to life? Well, all of this, you can see in the diagram, comes from the heart. And here are the, here are the questions to ask about your heart. What do I really want? What do I fear? And what am I trusting in? All of this together, what do I want, fear, and trust, points to what Scripture calls unbelief. Unbelief is just the failure to recognize God in the midst of your circumstances. It's a failure to believe what God has said. Okay, so everybody, everybody got it? Fruit to roots. All right, 10 of you, good. Here's, here's the thing, here's why, here's why we're belaboring this so much this month. A failure to understand this results in, in spending all of our time and energy 
trying to fix how you feel or trying to control your circumstances. And when friends come to you with problems, you're gonna, you may actually fan the flames of unbelief by not pointing them down to the root. With our kids, we're gonna spend all of our time trying to control behavior with parenting tricks rather than seeing sin as a golden opportunity to put our kids in touch with what's really happening in their hearts. So, with this picture in mind, we're gonna read a story in Numbers chapter 11. Why don't you turn there with me? Numbers chapter 11, that'll be on page 119 if you wanna borrow a Bible uh, from under the chairs in front of you. And here, here's the circumstance while you're finding Numbers chapter 11. God has rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He is bringing them uh, up to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He has promised to be with them. He's promised to provide for them and keep them safe. It's actually a wonderful picture of the Christian life. And in Numbers chapter 10, if you have it in front of you, in Numbers chapter 10, the journey starts really well. Everybody's excited. Moses in particular seems to be really uh, psyched. But God has led them into this place called the wilderness of Paran. And it's the longest, most desolate stretch of their journey. And, and by the way, so if you have it open in front of you, if you look at chapter 10, verse 33, it gives the impression that we're only three days into this journey. I, I don't know that for sure, but that's the impression. They're three days into their journey, and this is where we pick up the scene. While we read, I want you to watch for the fruit. What are they feeling, doing, and, and, and how are they reacting? And the root, what do they want, fear, and trust more than God? Okay, everybody there, ready? Here we go, Numbers 11. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, and the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bedellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in handmills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes out of it. The taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. He said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. This is the word of the Lord. Another upper at Faith Community Church. Okay, 
So God has led his people deliberately into the wilderness of Paran. And what fruit are they producing? Okay, well, most immediately and obviously we see, especially if you know the story of Israel, they fall into an old pattern. They start out with such hope and everything is going well, but as soon as things get hard, they fall into a pattern of grumbling and complaining. Uh, when it says, verse 1, when it says that they complained in the hearing of the Lord, the point is that they did it loudly, they were not subtle, and they intend for God to hear it. This is like a teenager who, you know, you're, you're having a conflict with your teenager, and they make some smart remark about you under their breath. They mean for you to hear it. Do you know what I'm talking about? I know none of you have ever done this, but just as a case study. <laughs> and you say, what was that? I wasn't talking to you. That's what is, they're deliberately provoking the Lord. They're angry, they're complaining. And God responds in verse one the way that a good parent would do. He lets them know this is not gonna fly here. And he lights the edge of their camp on fire to, to, literally, to, to literally put the fear of God in them. Uh, this like taking away your kid's license or something like, this is step one, it's going to get worse if, you, if we continue. Verse one says that the fire of the Lord burned on the outskirts of the camp and it makes quite an impression. They cry out to Moses, verse two, and they name the place Tibera. If you look in your notes, it's a burning. They name it burning. Well, that's not the end of it. What do kids do when complaining has not gotten them what they want? They throw a fit. They have a tantrum. And the, I don't want to be hard on Israel because we are, we are the same way, okay? So we're not picking on Israel today. This is your life. This is what we all do. But verse 4, they sit down and weep. They have a pity party. Uh, that's kind of the vibe you get in verse 4. They say, oh, the, oh, that we had meat to eat. And then they begin pining for Egypt. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt and it was free and the cucumbers and the garlic and the leeks. So this is another fruit. Uh, they've lost touch with reality. Uh, they're not thinking straight. Of course it was free. You were a slave. Everything is free to a slave. They just take your children. That's all. <laughs> so the fruit, what are they feeling? What are they doing? How are they reacting? They're complaining. They're avoiding God. Notice no one's actually talking to God. They're impatient. Again, as far as we know, and I, we don't know this for sure, but it sounds like it's been three days. They're filled with self-pity. They're angry. That's probably the main emotion in the story, even though the word is never used. They're angry with God, and since they can't get to God, they make Moses the scapegoat. We do this all the time. Most of your anger really is directed at God, but you can't get to him, and so it gets worked out on someone else, like chopping a cable out in the lawn. And finally, they're ungrateful. Look at verse six. There's just kind of this tone in verse six. All we have is, this manna to look at. This manna. Just the way it's said. This, this manna. Then the, the author, why does the author spend three verses, verses seven through nine, describing the manna to you? So that you would feel how crazy this is. We're talking about something that looked really good. Bedellium's kind of like this golden, flaky stuff. And um, it tasted really good. 
It was free, okay? All they had to do every day, just go out and pick it up off the ground and you could make, what'd you make? Cake, they ate cake all the time and it tasted really good and oh, it also fell from the sky. So they're complaining about, you know, what was a miracle 11 months ago has become, oh, this manna. This is exactly what we do. We beg and plead with, with God for a different job, a new romantic relationship, I mean, fill in the blank, and then he provides it to us. And we're telling all of our friends, God is so good, he's so amazing, praise Jesus, he's so good. And a year later you're like, how could you do this to me? Why do you hate me so much? I hate this person, you know? This is exactly what we do. One of the, before we talk about the root, let's just leave the wilderness of Paran for a second. Let's, let's come to Hudson. Let's just talk about Hudson. And how we process this when a friend comes to us with these kinds of issues. So let, let's, let's say you're at, you know, your favorite establishment, enjoying your favorite beverage, and your friend just starts to unload on you. They're in Paran, and everything is going wrong. They're frustrated. Life is not what it was supposed to be. They're angry and disappointed. And what do we do as Christians, okay? Well, we listen, right? That's in the Bible. Everyone should be Quick to listen, slow to speak. Okay, so we listen. Uh, second, it's just kind of a natural uh, human response, but especially among God's people, there's empathy. Say, oh, that, that is really hard. That does stink. It, sound, it sounds like your boss shouldn't have spoken to you that way. I'm sorry that this happened to you. But what, the, the other thing that needs to be added to the mix here, though, is what I would call just a word of encouragement which is to say, just to point people back to God. And just ask, what do you think God is doing right now? Uh, where is he at in this whole process? Because what happens is, if we stay at the, root, at the fruit, excuse me, we can actually inadvertently wind up fanning the flames of discontent. Oh, that, she is crazy. You're right to be angry about this. You deserve better, and so on and so forth. It's interesting that Moses, in, in verse 4, he uses the word rabble. What does rabble do? Well, they fan the flames of discontent. They just uh, pour gasoline on unmet desires rather than helping you take a step back and think about this logically and reasonably. And we don't want to be rabble. We want to be people who understand the, how the root impacts the fruit. Because, you know, you, you picture yourself at the coffee shop or wherever, you're talking with your friend. Well, here's God, and he's the one that has led them into this wilderness because he loves them. And he wants to show them something and teach them something. He's preparing them for something far greater, and we can actually get in the way by helping them problem solve without him in the picture at all. So the root. What is the root in this story? Verse 4 mentions a, a strong craving. Uh, the more common word you're going to see in scripture is desire or passion. Uh, we, they have a strong craving. It's not being met and so they just kind of uh, lose it a little bit. Uh, they want meat. They want comfort. 
They want to not be wandering in the desert. They want the security of a home. And who doesn't want those things, by the way? None of these things are bad or evil. And they're all things that God has promised to them on the other side of the wilderness. But they want it now, and they want it enough to uh, sin against God. Where's the unbelief in this story? To, to spot unbelief, all you really have to do is ask the question, where is God in the picture? And 99% of the time, the answer is he's not in the picture at all. That's the problem. Or you can just ask, what has God said in his word that I'm just not believing right now? So for example, God has promised Israel many, many, many times, I am going to take care of you. I will keep you safe and I will bring you to the promised land. They're just, they're either forgetting or they're choosing not to believe that. Uh, but I just want you to notice in verses one through nine, no one is actually going to God with what they want. No one's actually engaging God. They're just complaining about him and provoking him, I, trying to manipulate him, I think. He's nowhere in the picture. All they see are their problems and the problems are huge and God is not in the picture. So. There's more than one fruit to root happening in the story, isn't there? Moses has his own issues going on in verses 10 through 15. And actually Moses is bearing a lot of the same kinds of fruit. He is sinfully angry. He accuses God in verse 11 of dealing ill with him. In other words, you did evil to me, verse 11. He basically accuses God of not loving him. He says, why have I not found favor with you? He's filled with self-pity too. Did I give birth to all these people? Why is this my problem all of a sudden? Uh, he's faithless. In verse 13 he says, where am I going to get meat for all these people? You want to say, come on man. This isn't your first rodeo. You've seen the sea split, Okay. You saw the 10 plagues, where are you going to get the meat? Is this, is this a real question? He's disappointed with God. This trip started so well. Read the end of chapter 10 sometime. He's like begging his brother-in-law. He says, you got to come with us. This is going to be awesome. And he says, God is going to do good to his people. And here, three days later, maybe, a week later, if you're going to treat me this way, just kill me now. I don't, so I don't have to see how wretched I get. What Moses has going for him, though, that the people don't, is what? He's, yes, thank you. He's going to God. He's engaging with God. God is in the picture. And he's not a part of the people's picture. And they get very different results. Keep reading chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13. I know, you know, in, it's, it's common in pop theology to talk about forgiving God. If you want to heal, you want to move on, you need to forgive God for what he's done for you and things like that. I just want to say, we have no right to talk to God the way Moses does. You don't ever need to forgive God. He has never done wrong to you. He never does evil. He always works for good. So Moses is wrong. 
He, he is sinning against the Lord. What is the, and, and he's not the only one to do this. Elijah does something similar, not, not exactly, but Elijah does something similar. The Psalms are, are full of examples of people laying their complaints before the Lord like this. What is the point? The point is that, guys, if this is how you feel, then go to the Lord with it. He can handle your sin. I mean, how often have I prayed to God, I know I'm wrong, but I cannot help what I am feeling right now. And if you do not save me, and what I mean is like, if you do not step into this situation, if you do not correct and heal and restore my heart, I'm gonna work this out on a whole bunch of other people. I'm gonna make this a lot worse. I, need, I am so angry and I need you to help me. He, we read this in our uh, worship set today. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is what Moses is doing. He's wrong. I think he knows he's wrong. But he at least is going to the throne of grace to say, I cannot do this. So you see, sin is not the primary problem in your life. Sin is not the primary problem in your children's life. Sin is going to happen. It's unbelief that destroys people. It's trying to cope with sin apart from the power of God. That is what kills us. It's trying to deal with sin, not through the cross of Jesus, but in our own power. That's what separates us from God. It's not just about, it's about going anywhere but to God to try to cope with life. When we try to deal with sinful anger or fear or resentment and bitterness and we try to, to deal with our you know, errant desires apart from God, that is when unbelief starts to harden the heart and we really get into trouble. And it's the difference between Moses and his people. The author of Hebrews, reflecting on these stories in Hebrews 11 through 14, warns the church do not harden your hearts as they did because they fell one by one in the wilderness. Part of the reason understanding fruit to root and how your heart works, part of the reason it matters so much is that when you understand it, sin actually becomes this golden opportunity to actually experience how the gospel works. So just as an example, you know, far too many of us are constantly asking, how can I get my kid to behave? How can I get my kid to stop blank or to do blank? The question is, or it should be, how do I help my kid trust the living God? How do I put my, my child in touch with why Jesus had to die? Why the cross of Jesus is for them? 
That's what, we are not sin managers. We are gospel ministers. And so sin, under the gospel, sin, far from being the thing that kills you, is actually a golden opportunity for us personally and with our families and the people that we care about to bring them into touch with why Christ had to die. I was uh, in the store this week um, and got to witness a complete meltdown. Has anyone else seen a meltdown in the store, done a meltdown, or you have a child that's melted down? And it was over a Nerf gun. This child wanted a Nerf gun, and he just dissolved and wailing and screaming. He, humili- he was humiliating his mother. He was creating a nuisance for everyone else in the store. He wanted something so badly He was prepared to hurt everybody around him to get it, and it was a Nerf gun. Now, we've all experienced that. We've all done that. But there is a golden opportunity to help a child understand the gospel. And as someone who raised a complainer who's now with the Lord, uh, I can tell you, especially grumbling and complaining, is a golden opportunity to sit down with your child and say, do you see what you are doing? There is something really wrong with your heart. You are prepared right now to humiliate other people, to uh, you know, put yourself at the center of the universe and everyone has to get in orbit around you and if they don't, you're gonna punish them with all of your six-year-old might. Something is really wrong, don't you think? And if I allow this to continue, it is gonna destroy your relationships. It's gonna destroy you and your relationships, but most of all, it is gonna harden your heart. You need a new heart, and you cannot do that. You cannot fix your own heart. And this is why Jesus died for you that by shedding his blood, you, would, you, you have no need to leave this situation with shame or humiliation, but in trusting him, he has said, I will take all this away, and I myself will come in, and I will give you new life. I've had that conversation at least 10 times with my kids, and they literally leave the room changed. I teach them to pray. I say, this is what repentance sounds like, and this is how dad does it. Jesus, I have sinned against you. I've sinned against my family. Please forgive me. I thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. Would you come in and give me a new heart? And by the time they're nine, ten years old, the gospel isn't just a story or a set of data. They have experienced its transforming power in their lives. The root issue just, just one more thing on this. The, the root issue is always unbelief, but it does little good to say it that way. It does little good to come to God and say, God, I'm sorry for my unbelief. I confess my faithlessness. Repenting and, and, and real confession happen when we're able to recognize specifically what it is we want more than God. When I say, God, I'm sorry for my lack of faith, that is not the same as saying, God, I really want meat more than you, I just do. I mean, when you say it out loud, it sounds so stupid, right? I mean, to help a kid understand, 
Do you really want a Nerf gun more than a relationship with mommy? Even a six-year-old is like, well, that's dumb. Do you, do you really want a Nerf gun more than you want to honor God? Even a six-year-old can say, no, I, that's not what I really want. So you're putting them in touch with their heart. And it, and it becomes, you, you know, the problem, the thing they want just shrinks, 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 and God just becomes bigger, 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 bigger. I'll share one more story, and then we'll wrap up. And I have permission to share this story, though I've not fact-checked this story with the person involved. So you can ask her afterward, okay? <laughs> Many years ago, when Darcy and I were first learning the Root to Fruit tool, I decided that I would surprise her on her birthday. I don't know why, because I've never had a surprise go well with Darcy, but uh, that's what they do in movies, and that's what I decided to do. <laughs> I decided to surprise her, and the surprise was that I had arranged for her to meet one of her favorite people in the world in the, in the cities for lunch and to spend an afternoon of fun together. Her friend was gonna be in town speaking at this big, big business conference, and I lined it all, all up in secret, and then I told her like three days in advance, that, hey, your friend is coming, I've arranged everything, you just get in the van, and go and have a great day and I'll just take care of the kids and everything else. And as the day approached, she just became more and more what I'll describe as cagey. More and more just kind of uneasy about the whole plan and why are we doing this and why would I want to do this? I don't want to do this. And finally, uh, the night before, you know, she was supposed to go meet her friend, she came into the living room and announced, I'm not going. I don't want to do this. Why? I don't, I don't know the cities very well. I'm going to get lost. And that's not true, by the way. She always knows where we're going. Uh, then she went on and explained, where, where am I going to park? And I helpfully explained, well, in a parking spot. That's what, that's what you, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't like parking in the city. It's a, and, and I said, I said, hun, do you want help with this or do you just need to talk right now? Husbands, why don't you write that down right now? <laughs> you, you, I'm, I'm serious. Do you want help with this or do you just want to talk? She said, I just, just leave me alone. I just want to talk. So then she left. She comes back a half hour later. I'm not going. This is a bad idea. She said, what did, I'm going to pull up. She's probably driving a Mercedes and I'm going to pull up in our rusty old van, which now is starting to feel a little personal, but <laughs> I'm going to pull up in a van and what have I done with my, she, she goes all over the world and she, you know, she's an amazing person. What, do I, what have I done with my life? And et cetera, et cetera. Now I'm understanding a little more what's going on. I said, you want help with this or do you just want to talk right now? <laughs> so I just want to, just leave me alone. I just want to talk. She came back a half hour later and she said, okay, I know I'm wrong. Help me. And we literally sat down with this picture. We just learned it. We drew it on a piece of paper. I don't remember all the different things, but I remember asking her, where is God in the midst of all this, these feelings? She said, nowhere. I'm not thinking about God at all. I said, well, are there, are there any promises that God has made to you that, that you know? That you're just not believing? And of course, she knew like 50. All about God's presence and his kindness and his goodness and et cetera, et cetera. And we were able to just, you know, talk about each one. And the, and the problems just shrink and shrink. And, I mean, how silly. Her, she, she was sinning against the Lord. She was sinning against her friend. Her friend doesn't care about the van. She's a nice person. And they, they had a great time together. Actually, we have some really cool stories, just miraculous stories of things that God did in that. But what, in, in 30 minutes, you know, she went from 
a small and absent make-believe God uh, to a heart full of the, the presence and power of the real and genuine God. She went from fear to faith, shame to hope, anxiety to peace, 30 minutes. Fruit, root. This is how we put on the power of the gospel day in and day out. For a lot of Christians, you know, for a lot of Christians, the gospel is a story that we believe because we don't want to go to hell. That's not a bad place to start, okay? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, okay? But in the rest of our lives, with all the rest of our problems, we go everywhere but God to try to cope with those things. While infinite power and God's presence and restoring, reconciling faith is right there in the Christian heart. I have come that you may have life, Jesus said, and have it to the full. This is what we mean when we talk about a life inspired by the gospel. And just, just as sin begets sin, faith also begets faith. And when you learn to trust God in this thing, then the next thing is easier to trust him in and so on and so forth. And I just want to say, the time to begin that is right now. Today is always the best day to trust Jesus. So I'm going to invite you to do a couple things as we close. We're going to close in prayer this morning, just a couple things. First of all, some of you here this morning are recognizing right now, maybe that you are understanding the gospel for the first time. My heart is sick Jesus has died to pay the penalty for my sin and promises to make me new. I want to encourage you right now in your seat as we close to just say, Jesus, I am sorry that I have sinned against you and against others. Thank you for the promise that you will forgive my sin because of your death on the cross. Would you come and make me new? You can pray that right now as we close. For others, though, this is just a great opportunity to confess I have been trying to deal with my life in every way except trusting the gospel. If there's anything specific that comes to mind, do that. I just want to give you a minute and a half right now. Pray for yourself. Pray for your family. Ask God to make the gospel real and rich and alive to your kids. And I'll close this in a minute. today would you hear these prayers and God would you make us people that are just powerfully in touch 
what has really transpired in the death of Jesus and the hope that we have because you have promised to come and heal and restore our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.